How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you could you could be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Welcome, everyone, to Chasing Giants, episode 57, live from another masterclass, Don. We have a full house watching us uh, try to pull this thing off and probably going to ask us some really tough questions a little bit later. Yeah, we've got, uh, I think, even more states represented tonight than we had last week. So we got New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky... Michigan, um, Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, Missouri, Iowa. Did I miss anybody? New Hampshire? New Hampshire. Uh, I don't know how many that is, but that, that's, that's a, a lot, lot of big buck killing states. Yep, for sure. Well, um, I, I actually enjoy this platform a little bit better because I like the interaction with people and when you make awkward comments to me, I'm not the only one that can witness it and feel very awkward. Well, th- this is going to be a long evening for you, oh. Terry, I promise. Just <laughs> 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 so, um, um, as, as we did last week, we're not going to spend too much on the first segment of the show before the Biofarm uh, segment. We're going to leave a lot of questions, uh, time for questions for everybody to come up and put you on the spot. And um, Al Foster is in the house again tonight, so we're anticipating another really tough, tough one that you, you really don't know how to answer, but, you know, put put you on the spot and let you wing it. Well, last week's question was so good that uh, I thought about it all week, and I'm going to answer it again tonight. <laughs> How's that sound? Yeah, he did this, Al, he did this when somebody asked a question about mechanical broadheads, and then he thought about it all week, and he said, you know, I didn't say what I meant to say, and we're going to, 15 minutes later, he finally gets off his rant. No, you still need to ask him another one. You can't You can't get off the hook like that. So, uh, real quick, um, we talked a little bit about uh, last week about your uh, new property that you got access to in Iowa. Did you get a chance to go out there? No, I intended to, but the weather just held me up, and, um, you know, we got rain. I actually called out there and planned to go, and, and they had three or four inches of snow on the ground, and the landowner just suggested that I, w- I wait another week or so, and, uh, you know, the fields will be a lot firmer so I can drive across them with a UTV and not tear up the fields as much, and which was fine with me. I didn't care to put up stands in the rain, so. Well, we still had a busy week, both of us, this week, we so did. it's uh I'm sure you got something else done. What would you end up doing besides I, I went that? on a couple of consulting trips here, well, halfway local, within mm-hmm. within three hours at home. I saw a uh, I saw a picture on social media, I guess, posted the end of last weekend with your grandson with a big shed you all found. That looked pretty cool. Yeah, last Sunday, and we made the, the one trip into the sanctuary. 
um, to look for sheds and actually was really disappointed. Uh, we probably found, I don't know, four or five, but typically when we go in there in mid-March, we'll, we'll end up with 20 or more sheds. And the only thing I can figure is that most of them must still be on the buck's heads because, I mean, we looked and there was uh, five of us looking. So we I would have thought we would have found more than what we did. Well, I didn't know you were going to mention that, but I wanted to ask you, um, I don't know if you saw Real World social media, but our buddy Dana Rogers from South Dakota sent us a picture of some northern beans. And he was trying to show us that the bean store and the pods, but mm-hmm. he had he had two good bucks still carrying their antlers in that picture. Did you see that? Yeah, and, and when I was on a property consulting in northern Illinois yesterday, uh, we bumped a bunch of deer. There was a herd of probably 25, and there was two or three bucks in that bunch that still had both sides. So still don't, still don't really know why or any rhyme or reason why some hold and some don't, huh? I haven't figured it out, and I don't think I ever will. Yeah. I still want to. I still want to explore that theory and and see if maybe even people like Doctor Strickland have ever looked at if the long the longer the buck holds the antlers into the spring, if that affects the antler growth the following year. I think that would be a really good dive into. I don't know how you would really prove it, but I, I don't either. And he would be a guy to ask. Yeah. So we're gonna have him on another podcast here sometime uh, coming up later this year. So that'll be a. Maybe something we can pick his brain on. So, um, right. what uh, what else other than uh, master classes here? We got a full house this weekend. Uh, we'll, we already had some dinner tonight, and uh, we'll go out and tour two different properties tomorrow. And you're going to give quite a few presentations. And thank goodness, good weather tomorrow. This is yeah. this is a record. We won't be tromping around in the rain. It may be a little bit muddy, but it's supposed to be 56 and sunny. So, uh, you know, typically when I schedule one of these classes, I can just pencil rain in as well because that's about the way it happens. But uh, we got lucky tomorrow. Yep. So what else? Lester's feet. You got an update about Lester's feet? I actually do. Um, first of all, um, our, our friends listening, you know who you are. As I left the uh, master class last weekend, I hooked up to your 30-foot gooseneck. And after I ran over your mailbox... <laughs> I went to Indianapolis. True story. <laughs> True, True story. story. <laughs> that brand new truck that uh, I'm trading in now has a dent in the door and a busted taillight. So, um, got to get that fixed before. Uh, yeah. Chris yeah. Yates won't like that. No, I ha- I texted him and said, how long do I have to get it fixed? So, if anybody listening to this podcast right now has a 2021 F-250, do not dock the back taillight out. It costs over $1,000 to fix, just an FYI. Anyway, um, I drove the gooseneck to Indianapolis, and some friends of the podcast who are supporting Lester's feet drove from Elkhart, Indiana, down to Indianapolis, and um, I have a sales office in Fishers, which is on the northeast side, and, and they were gracious enough to let me use their forklift and parking lot, and as near as I can figure, there's, I don't even know how much, but they donated a bunch of lumber, MDF, and materials for the wood shop. So anything we do for Lester's feet from this point forward, I won't have any fixed cost with material. So it's more wood than I could ever imagine. So all kinds of red oak and maple and uh, and different cab- their cabinet uh, company. So this was some of the extra stuff that they wanted to donate. So really appreciate that. And, um, you know, the, the thing that we've been struggling with is we're starting the foundation and setting up all of the IRS paperwork. So 
to do our online raffle where you're going to be donating a hunt on this farm um and i'm going to be donating a velvet hunt the opening weekend of september on my farm and then all of our sponsors are kicking in stuff it's going to be a long list of different prizes in this auction you have to be an established nonprofit to be able to run this because of state gambling laws so um, our biggest thing was finding a nonprofit that was willing to kind of let us run the money through and then be able to disperse it to the families that we're going to be helping. So that got ironed out su- su- uh, Sunday. So I will be uh, in the next couple weeks, we're going to set dates and items that are going to be in this raffle. And uh, for all of our Amish friends that are listening on MTech. There will even be information for you guys, so you don't um, you'll be able to submit uh, entries into the raffle um, by by mail, and you won't have to um, worry about a website. So we have we have that covered for you guys. So we appreciate you guys listening on MTech. But uh, here very shortly, if you're following the Lester's Feet Facebook page and Chasing Giants, you're going to get dates on when we're going to be putting that raffle up. So as of today. We've helped the Ward family. We paid for their March house payment and farm payment. And then there is a family in Kentucky that has a special needs daughter that has to have a procedure in, I believe, Charleston, South Carolina, the beginning of next month. And we're paying all of the travel expenses for that family to go down and have a procedure done on their special needs daughter that's in a wheelchair. So those are two families that we've already started and been able to help. So pretty exciting. Yeah, and you know, I continue to get questions from people wanting to know. They they think we threw that out there and kind of dropped the ball, but it's just been a matter of getting the legalities in order to uh, keep the government happy and yep. be able to help these people. So uh, in the next couple of weeks, this will these will be hunts that we're donating for the 2021 hunting season. So this, this is going to be this fall. Mm-hmm. Um, Don, you're going to come down to my house for opening weekend, and we're all going to be together, hopefully getting a velvet buck on the ground for somebody, and then I'll be up here for whoever wins yours. And Probably at the end of October we'll yep. do that hunt. So. Yep. So uh, we'll uh, have some good opportunities along with some other prizes. Um um, our friends at Extreme, um, help me with the name. I'm going to screw it up if I don't say it right. The the Leaf Blower Seed Company. Oh, uh, the Extreme Spreader. Yep. Um, they sent a whole case of Extreme. What is it, Dwayne? Help me. I'm going to mess it up. So, uh, yeah, but what's the name of the company? He's going to be mad at me if I don't say it right. Bear with me. I'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah, look that up for me. I had a brain fart. I got put on the spot, so we appreciate them. But Lester's feed is fully uh, up and going, and uh, we'll have more information in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned. I'm sure there's a lot of people ready to uh, to get their tickets bought. You know, I've uh, heard from I don't know how many Amish people whenever I go do these consulting visits, you know, how can I get in on it? Uh, I don't have the Internet, but uh, rest assured, we're going to have it set up so you can be a part of it as well as, as much as anyone. So, I mean, it's good prizes, but the ultimate goal is we're helping families with really sick kids help cover bills, and everything that comes in is going back out, and we're actually paying the bill directly. So it's not like we're walking up to somebody we don't know and handing them a wad of cash. We actually ask them for the bill itself, and then we pay the bill directly. So it helped alleviate some of the stress that these families are going through because um, I, I can't imagine some of the stuff that uh, are the bills even with insurance that they get stuck with on. So, Yep. All right. What's next? Uh, I want to go back to Al's question from last week for just a minute. As long as it does not involve me in my underwear, let's talk about it. 
We're going to address that later. But uh, first, uh, yeah, Al last week had a, had a great question, really put me on the spot uh, about ethics. Um, his question was, you know, I've been deer hunting about 43 years now. And his question was, if you just mark off the first 10 years, to compare my ethics, uh, my ethical stance, say, from year 10 to 20, versus year 30 to 40 and how it changed and you know there was a a uh, post i seen on facebook this week that really kind of hit home and in, in, on this topic and it was a younger guy posting basically saying that if it's illegal um what's it matter and that was kind of the approach that i probably had years 10 to 20 you know i just uh I kind of thought if it was legal, who's somebody else to tell me um, that I shouldn't be doing it or maybe I should do something different. And the the older I got and realized that, you know, the best deer hunters that I knew on the planet were the most ethical. And those guys' approach to the sport went way beyond what the law allowed. Um, They didn't let a bunch of corrupt politicians dictate um, their stance on various subjects related to deer hunting and you know, you can really take it beyond deer hunting to life in general. Um, you know, a, a politician in one state tells deer hunters, you can do this and it's fine. And, you know, another group of corrupt politicians in the next state over says, no, you can't do that. It's illegal. And, uh, you know, somewhere between year, say, 10 and 40, um, you know, I figured out that uh, the law is just basically a starting point. Um I definitely don't encourage anyone to break game laws, but but the game law should be a starting point on what you see is acceptable in the deer woods. It shouldn't be the the be all end all um, answer. And I think I kind of Al, Al did a great job putting me on the spot, and I think I kind of danced around the topic just a little bit last week. So I, I think the biggest difference in me between years ten and twenty versus thirty and forty is that. Uh, you know, I started uh, thinking beyond what the law allows. The The comment that you made that stuck out in my mind, and I thought about it a lot over the week too, was um, you would hate to guess how much, and I think you kind of spun it more to integrity than ethics, but how much money you've probably lost in the outdoor industry with what you said <laughs> and not, not any filter. And that that's what really... I think the ethics then drives into the person itself and the integrity that, that stands behind. And most people that listen to this podcast or follow you and I know that we haven't even always gotten along. You know, we, we went through a patch where, um, I think there was, there was another variable in between us that kind of skewed some, some facts and everything for us. But the thing that I've always appreciated about you is it is what it is. And I know for a fact that there's people that will not buy anything with a real world logo on it just because they can't stand you. That's true. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a fact, but that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my integrity has never been for sale and, uh, you're never going to see me as one of those people in the hunting industry that, uh, jumps from one sponsor to competing sponsor because the money's bigger. Um, yeah, I'm just a simple country boy and I was raised with country values and, and they're going to be with me till the day I die. And if it costs me money, it costs me money. But, uh, the people in my circle, I've got their back the whole way. Well, and, and people will never know, uh, with the growth of the podcast, 
especially in the last six months, how much stuff we kind of avoid, don't respond to, or or decline. Um, but yeah, we could have been bought and sold quite a few times already, and and the pot with the growth of the podcast, and uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things. We do take sponsors, but we're very careful about who we take, and um, you know, we're not perfect either. This is kind of new territory for us, being being in this much of a public eye. I mean, even you, with a, being an outdoor writer for so many years, you've never had this level of platform that people are hearing your message every single week. So it's it's new to us too. To be honest, I'm kind of shocked that people care what I say. <laughs> uh, um, that won't be the first time I've said that this week. Is the amount of people listening to this is crazy? But yeah. you know, and, and you talk about integrity, and and I've had something that's kind of heavy on me the last, especially two weeks, and what you said last week about costing you money. At the same time, I think there's a responsibility on our end of integrity. And, uh, you know, this whole cell camera thing started and I did that as a way to give unbiased data to our listeners. And, you know, I'm going to call it like it is. If something's garbage, it's garbage, but that's my opinion. However, somebody else spends their money. It is. And somewhere along the line, I called one of these garbage and somebody said, let's blow one up. Let's shoot one with a mechanical (laughs) broadhead. Oh yeah, that's great. And even though this podcast and your YouTube channel could get a ton of views from it, um, it's been really heavy on me. That's not who we are, and that's not who I am, to milk um, that kind of, I guess, um, I'm not going to try to embarrass a company. Mm-hmm. I'll, call, I'll give my feedback about it, but to take something out, and I've just decided we're not blowing one up and we're not shooting one. We can figure something else out to blow up, but to call a company out and – humiliate them or drag them through the dirt and destroy their stuff on and and us get views or likes or shares i'm just not into that so i i hope everybody understands we we're trying to hold up the same type of integrity and i'm I'm just going to pull the plug on that it's it's funny but at the same time you know there's these are companies that are in the outdoor industry trying to trying to make a living Trying to sell product, what they decide to do and where their place in the market is, that's fine. But I think we're going to steer away from destroying stuff for gain of likes or listens or anything on the podcast. Well, I think without a doubt it's the right decision. You know, when we started Real World, we was just uh, beginners, you know, looking to get our feet in the door in the outdoor industry. And if we could go back and do it over, knowing what we do, we know now, I'm sure we would do some things different. Right. And uh, these startup companies with their trail cameras, you know, I'm sure that uh, they wish they had the best trail cameras on the market. And if they're serious about staying in the marketplace, they're probably going to do the research and development and, and uh, improve on those cameras. So we're not here to bash people, but uh, we're going to tell it like it is. Exactly. Yep. So, but sure. I just, I don't feel comfortable going to that level where we're, we're trying to humiliate people. Um, I guess my problem with the integrity thing really lies not with the companies building the product, not with the, it's, it's the outdoor industry as a whole, just from one time or another saying, Oh, we use this brand. Now we use this brand. Now we use this brand. And at the same time, they're not doing anything other than driving their own likes with a picture or a tag in social media to try to help that company really sell anything. How are they really trying to sell something for that company? You know, we have an obligation with our sponsors. We're field sales guys for those people. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the industry, it needs people like that, but I think they've lost their focus in the self, the selfish side of that. It's all about me, 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 and not what the intent of the relationship is for. Yeah, and I can relate to some of that. You know, I talked about my ethics when I was younger. Um, when I start, had my first uh, magazine article published, I was in my early 30s. Um, I think it was 33 uh, years old, but uh, at that time, shortly after I started having articles published, um, at, at that time, I mean, companies were just throwing product at, at people in the industry, and, uh, you know, I was one of them young guys hungry to get in the outdoor industry, and anybody that was going to send me free stuff, I was going to take it, and, uh, you know, I and I did, and as I used some of it, it's like, man, this is pure junk. Why did I even take this thing? Yep. And... Uh, then I felt obligated to that company, and uh, I'm just about to the point where I mean, like last year when we uh, I was doing the, the uh, trail camera test, um, I think there was four different companies that reached out and wanted to sponsor us, trail camera companies, and uh, I just said we're not going to do it. And if I don't believe in your camera, if I don't think it's the best out there, because I'm going to use the best, then I just assume not have a sponsor. And it goes back to Al's question, you know. That's one of the things that's changed in me over the past 20 years or, or 25 years, 30 years, somewhere in there, that um, I just I just don't want to take free stuff and then owe somebody a favor in return. <laughs> I would. It's kind of like the deal with Chris Yates and, and the Chevy trucks, you know. I, he asked me, I did a, a consulting visit on his property, and he asked me about sponsoring the podcast, and I wasn't sure that we was going to be able to offer him anything of value. Right. And um, well, you you came to me and said this is just a great deal. Do you mind if we talk about it on the podcast? Yep. Just for our listeners to know and learn about it. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. I so, had no idea it would cause what it did. Yeah. I, I told Chris, I said, I, before I take your money, let me just mention it on the podcast, the next podcast, one time, <laughs> and let's see what happens. And then you can, if it's you know worth your money to to advertise, and let's move forward. Well, what did he tell you? They sold the. Uh, it's 26, wasn't it? I think 26 trucks in the first five days. Yeah, something like that. Based on our podcast. But it, and it's well, just, it's the deal he has. It's a great opportunity. It's yeah. nothing about us. It's just we're helping convey that message. We're so. getting the word out. But uh, I, I wasn't willing to take his money until I seen that we could do something in return for him. So. And too many people in the hunting industry today, it's like, give me your money, give me your product. Who cares what I can do for you? Yep. So... Anyway, um, sorry for those who are going to be disappointed. I'm not blowing up a cell camera, but we'll blow something else up. We'll we'll pick something around here. There's, I see a coffee pot back there. We'll 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 shoot something at 500 yards with a muzzleloader and see what it does. So, hope you guys understand. With that, let's move on to the buyfarm.com property of the week. Buyafarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. Okay, this week's featured property is 279 acres in Hardin County, Illinois. And, folks, this place is ready to roll. Um, I visited this property and I can tell you that, I mean, it's just ready to start hunting. There's multiple food plots. Um, the owner, for the last 25 years, has been very serious um, about habitat. Um, he's planted hundreds 
uh, various fruit trees, um, mass-producing trees such as chestnuts, uh, pears, apples, crab apples, you name it. And, and I'm talking these trees are big and producing fruit today. Those were the trees on your tree video list. They were. I mean, this Almost guy. Almost like you recommended it to begin with. He was reading my mind 25 yeah. years ago when there he planted them. Um, the, the, there's a lodge on this property that's just, you, you have to see it to believe it. I mean, you can sleep 12 people in it. Uh, the, the current owner is actually a, a home builder. And uh, so that lets you know you know, how fancy it is and, and the quality of the the uh, carpentry on this place. Um, it, it'll easily sleep 12 people. I forget how many, I think it's got six bedrooms in there, four bathrooms. Um, it's got a locker room area for your hunting clothes to keep them scent free. Uh, it's got a uh, game processing room um, with uh, stainless steel sinks and, and, you know, just everything you would need, electric hoist. For the uh, tree saddle? Um, I don't know about that, Terry. I, if you was coming, he'd probably have one for you. But uh, <laughs> um, Let's see. Now you got me sidetracked. I got notes. I can't even read my notes. Um, gated access to the property. I mean, it's, it's behind lock and key. There's a, a perimeter fence. Um, they've had absolutely zero vandalism in 25 years. they got high-speed internet. Um, at the lodge, uh, security system. Um, the, the owners have been leasing an adjoining property for, of 77-acre adjoining property um, for several years, and, and that was could probably be leased by the new owner. Uh, what else? It's uh, Within a mile is the Shawnee National Forest, so you're, you not only have the option of hunting this property, but right down the road you've got the Shawnee National Forest. We've talked about that area before. Yep, Absolutely. Uh, the Ohio River is just about a mile away. In, in the summertime, you could stay at this lodge and have a boat on the river uh, for fishing and skiing, whatever you wanted to do there. Um, what else? Um, the address, the, the towns that are, it's, the property is near Elizabethtown, Illinois. It's got a little bit of CRP income, uh, some marketable timber. Uh, there's a pond on the property. All mineral rights go with it. And believe it or not, the taxes on this, almost 300 acres, and this lodge that I'm telling you is better than my house, um, the, the taxes are only $620 a year. Um, oh, that's possible. If you're interested, you need to go to biofarm.com. There's drone footage of this property, um, all kinds of pictures. What uh, county is it in? Hardin County. Hardin County. So... Go out to buyafarm.com or look at their Facebook page on social media and learn more about this property. Who's the agent? Todd Hewing. And buddy Todd. Todd's phone number, 217-663-8087. You can call Todd, and uh, he'd be glad to show it to you. We can say whatever we want about Todd because he does not listen to the podcast. So He doesn't listen <laughs> to it, but he's one of the title sponsors. Everybody tells him what's on it, but I don't think Todd listens to the podcast. <laughs> So, all right. Well, sounds good. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and uh, tell our first person of the master class tonight that's got a question to make their way up to the microphone. It's always the it's always the toughest to get the yeah. first one up there. Somebody's got to break we, the uh, ice because uh, once that happens, then the, it just gets rolling. So, yep. Or else I'm going to have to pull Joe Johnson up here and put him on the spot. We got two headed there now. Perfect. All right. So Anybody gonna, else? Um, 
Yeah, make just your, keep them coming. Make your way up there. <laughs> so we're going to have the first question. The only rule is you have to at least state your first name and where you're from when you talk. And you got to get closer to the mic, Al, because last week we could barely hear you put Don on the spot. So tonight you hey, got to. How's that? A little bit closer. Worse, if, if I turn you up any louder, it's going to squeal in everybody's ear. How's that? That's better. Thank you. I'm Al. Hi, Al. I'm, I'm from around here. <laughs> Al brought no. me. Al brought me a couple copies of his old articles from a long time ago in North American Whitetail. Al is the legend. I I get to read them. So the legend can't way wait. More, way more credit than to do. Don, uh, this is maybe help these guys out here, and you probably talked about this maybe on a podcast. I don't know, but I know that you watch your bucks. You catalog your bucks from the time you start seeing them at a young age. You follow them all the way through. How do you catalog them? How do you take keep track of all that? Uh, what what spec? When do you get specific about a certain buck? What starts to draw your attention to where you start focusing on maybe trying to hunt that buck? That's my question. Great question. So, um, think you know, trail cameras is is the way I, I track these bucks, and we're going to get into that a lot tomorrow. But uh, you, you need to you know, have some kind of system to keep those photos in, in some kind of uh, organized order where you can refer back to them. So uh, uh, what I use is the Reconyx software. It's called BuckView. You can go right to the Reconyx uh, website and download it. Uh, I've found that it works with uh, just about any brand of camera. Um, you know, typically I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to a buck until he has survived gun season when he's three and a half years old. There, I've, there's way too many bucks that get killed as three-year-olds. Um, so once they've survived gun season as three-and-a-half-year-olds, that's when I really start paying attention to the better ones. And, uh, yeah, I just I follow along. A lot depends on, on the individual buck as to how old I'll let him get before I'm going to chase him. Um, you know, Mel, the buck I shot this past fall, uh, was four and a half years old, and typically I would let a good four and a half year old that's living on my place, especially, live at least another year, if not two. But this buck just covered way too much territory. He was going to get killed by somebody, and he was just way too big for that to happen. And um, I ended up shooting him as a four, four and a half year old. Um, the other buck that I shot last season, Joey, um, we sent his teeth in to be aged, and he came back at eight and a half years old. And uh, basically, I'd been following him for about three seasons after my buddy Joe Johnson found his sheds and uh, ended up killing him the first day I hunted for him. So um, when I'm going to go after him really varies by the buck, the buck's personality and where he's living at uh, as much as anything. So there's really no, you know, set answer there. It's Well, specifically, are you categorizing the photos by the location or the buck after they're three and a half? Or both? Uh, I, they're all categorized by location. Okay. Um, you know, I save pictures based on location. And, and this software really has, it's almost like Google Earth on there where you can, you can mark each of your camera locations on that uh, um, aerial map. And, uh, and then you can name them. And then it's got, uh, you know, your list below of all your, your locations. And you can go back. So, you, you let's say you... You got a camera location marked Big Oak Tree, and and all of a sudden a giant buck shows up at Big Oak Tree. Well, you can go back through previous year's pictures at that same location, and boom, there he was the year before. He just blew up, and that's what happened with the Trump buck. Um, 
and it really helps you age that buck because then you go back to the previous year well there he was again well then there he was the year before that well there he was as a two-year-old and i don't think you can age bucks by just looking at a picture especially once they get three and a half and older but if you've got that history year after year you can go back and you can see yeah he was a two-year-old and aging from there. Well, I think one of the topics you're going to talk about with this group tomorrow is being ahead of the deer, not reacting to the deer. And, For sure. And especially as the trail camera commodity market, especially in cell cameras, have gotten cheaper and so many more people are in it. They're relying to say, that deer is in there today. I'm going to go after him. And if you're taking the approach that we're going to kind of show tomorrow mm-hmm. in this master class with yearly patterns – organizing your pictures has got to be a vital part in uh, making sure you kind of keep track of everything. So great, great question, Al. All right, we got time for another one. My name is Bailey McGuire, and I'm from southwest Wisconsin. So my question stems from all of the information that you've gathered throughout the years. As a young hunter, if you could go back and talk to yourself, what is the, the one thing that you would tell yourself at the beginning of your hunting journey and why would you tell yourself that specifically? You'd hunt out of a love swing a whole lot earlier in your career, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would have probably walked away the first day I met you. <laughs> uh, as far as being a, a better hunter or life in general, being a better hunter, oh, without a doubt, I would have started listening to Al Foster the first day I met him, um, the guy saved me 10 years on the learning curve. And basically what he taught me right out of the gate, um, he taught me about playing the wind. And I remember the first summer I met Al, um, every time I'd get a break at work, I would we worked together in the, in the same place. And every time I'd get a break, I'd run over and talk to Al. And uh, a lot of times we'd get the pen and paper out, and he was drawing – you know, things and his stand locations. He was showing where the deer were coming from, and they was using this trail and that trail. And uh, he was always marking the wind direction. Well, at that time, I I knew that you didn't want the wind blowing towards the deer from your stand. That's about all I knew. And he he was really detailing it out for me. And the the number of bucks I seen that next fall – the previous season, I didn't know Al, hadn't talked to him at all. Met Al that, that spring, talked to him all summer. The next year, the number of bucks I seen from a stand tripled. And if I would have re- recognized as a beginner, and I was a beginner then, but I'd been hunting a few years. If I would have recognized from day one how important the wind is, I, I think today, you know, most hunters get hung up on hunting sign. They want to see beat down paths past their stand. They want to see giant rubs within view of their stand and the wind does not give get near the credit that it deserves or near the attention that it deserves from from deer hunters and and uh, you know when a, a mature buck's on his feet in daylight hours you can just about bank on him using the wind and uh, if he doesn't feel safe he's not going to and one way I've described it is uh, you wouldn't think about just getting out of bed in the morning and going through your day with your eyes closed I mean, you wouldn't get out of your bedroom before you'd, you know, run into the wall or fall on your face. And a mature buck, for the most part, he's not going to get out of his bed and move if if he's uh, doesn't have the wind. His nose is important to, to him as our eyes are to us. So um, 
I, I see even veteran hunters, guys that have been hunting 40 years or more, that still do not give enough credence to the wind that they should. And uh, that's why most of them, quite frankly, aren't killing big deer. It is a big buck, forget the sign in front of your stand. Um, the wind has to be right. And when you start playing the wind, and it, it takes a lot of faith to do it at the beginning. It, it's really hard to just stick your stand somewhere because, hey, the wind's right here. <laughs> but when that mature buck walks by the first time and you've played the wind to get him there, I'm telling you what, you become a believer and you start playing the wind and each one becomes just a little bit easier than the one you've seen before. So if I could go back to the day I started deer hunting and tell myself one thing, it's you better recognize right out of the gate how important the wind is. I can tell you that when he started letting me hunt this farm or other properties that he had, he he had only one rule, and that you don't hunt it on the wrong wind. He he would care less about me going in there shooting a two-year-old by accident than me going in and hunting the wrong wind and not shooting anything. And that that was his number one rule. Um, you you don't go into that area with the wrong wind. So he it's it's serious. And, and we're going to detail that tomorrow. You know, we're going to look at about a dozen stands. And, uh, you know, when we go to every one, I'm going to tell you what wind direction I'm hunting that stand with and why I'm hunting. And what your approach is. And the access to that stand. Yep. Okay. Great question. Okay, we got another one. Amos from Ohio. Uh, I got two questions. First the, question. The is second for, one costs you a dollar. You only get one for free. I'm just kidding. First question is for Terry. Uh-oh. Terry. I'm not supposed to take questions. That's his job. <laughs> What do you do when you what do you do when you're thirty feet up the tree and your love swing get hit with a code brown? Well, I've never been thirty feet up in a love swing, but I have gotten a code brown. So uh, I guess I can't answer that question in its entirety. I, I guess, think that's, I the guess best, it, that's the best question we ever had submitted. You're not only going to get a free T-shirt, you're going to get a free jacket. <laughs> so, can you can you describe the geometry and nature of the love swing and where the open areas are? I might be able to. I might be able to. I, I don't use one, so I don't know. Okay, I, I can't. I can't honestly say myself either. I, I would assume that if it was open in some areas, you could just take care of it there. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I, I got him puzzled okay. enough, no. the next question would be for Don you put him up to that didn't you I had nothing to do with it Terry I don't believe you <laughs> what do you do when you take your grandkids hunting do you let them shoot whatever comes or do you have rules or let's say a 216 inch buck comes walking <laughs> in do you let him shoot it or the reason I'm asking because I have a younger son and after he shot a nice buck as a five-year-old boy the next year he told my wife i uh, i'm not sure i want to go hunting dad don't let me shoot it anyhow because i was wanting him to hold out for a big one so what do you do then well you know that's a great question and talk about changing from you know when i was had 10 to 20 years deer hunting experience to today uh, I don't care if a world record comes out and my grandson's in front of me with the gun or bow, he's shooting it. Um, for, for much of my life, I had my priorities in the wrong order, and deer hunting was way up there at the top. And, yeah, it, it helped me to get to where I'm at today, but it, there's also a heavy price to pay. There's, there's a lot of times when uh, 
my girls were growing up that I was sitting in a deer stand when I should have been somewhere else. And uh, I'm glad I recognized the error in my way before I got any older. Um, today, you're going to see some pictures tomorrow on the, on the slideshow of bucks that family members have shot that I wish had gotten to live a few more years. Um, killing big bucks is great, but it's not the most important thing in the world. And I'm telling you, I don't care what buck walks by. If my grandkids are there hunting with me, they're going to get to shoot it. Pull it down there. I'm Royce. I'm from uh, Wisconsin. Question for Don. Why do you prefer 360 blinds compared to the other blinds? Boy, you teed that one up for me, Royce. Thank you. <laughs> Did Ed I, I put got, you up to that? Ed's um, here and probably put But, hey, when he got here, before you answer that question, he was one of the first ones here today, so I was making conversation with him. I said, how old are you? What grade are you in? He said, seventh. I said, what do you like to do? Hunt. Well, what else do you like to do? Fish? So what else? Kill stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. That's, that's him well, in a nutshell. I was talking to him before it started this evening, too, and I can tell you <laughs> what. He has watched every video that we put out. He knows the history of every buck I've ever shot as well as I do. Um, he listens to every podcast. Um, if you ever want to retire, or I want to retire. I think we got a fill in right here. Yeah, he can come take my spot. Yeah, you won't pick on him as much as he's a kid. He'll probably pick on me. Is what happened. That's all right though. But uh, all right, back to the question. Why do I like three sixties better than any blind? Uh, first of all, is the view. I mean, you sit in there and there's not really a blind spot. It's almost like sitting in a, a tree stand. You know, you just you turn your head now. I've hunted in other blinds where I had to put a chair like this in, and I'm always doing this, you know, rolling around uh, to see from one window to the other. And, shoot, by the time you're done with your hunt, your legs are about ready to give out because you're pushing yourself around the entire hunt. Um, it, it starts with the view. I think the construction of them is quieter than a lot of other blinds. Um, I, I like the windows, that you, the fact that you can't see in them. Uh, I used to sell another brand of blind as well. And I had a display with both the 360 and this other brand. And uh, you know, it got to the point where I couldn't sell the other brand because, I mean, you could look up there and you could see right through it. And it was obvious that if someone was sitting in that blind, you would see them. But with the window system in these blinds, I mean, you just don't see a person sitting up there, especially if, unless you've got two windows opposite each other that are open. If one of them's closed, it's, it's uh, you know... You're just not going to be seen. So, so those are the biggest reasons. One of Thanks. the one of the most undersold uh, features of that blind that you'll understand when you get taller and fatter like me, and you can't sit very long without your back curtain is you got to stand up. You that little bitty window around the top. You don't have to duck down to see out the window. You can stand up for twenty minutes and stretch your back out, and you don't have to duck down to to see out the window. That's my favorite part. And something you might not know is uh, I was at a, a show, an outdoor show in Ohio several years ago when, when I first seen these blinds for the very first time. And, boy, I went back for like three days in a row, and I'm in, in these blinds and just checking them out, and I just fell in love with them to the point that I actually tried to buy the company. When 360 started, I actually tried to buy the company, and uh, they didn't want to sell it. It's probably a good thing because I had enough irons in the fire but that's how impressed I was from the beginning, and I've not been disappointed since. So. 
That would have been another social media account I would have been running for you, wouldn't it? Yeah. You would have had to quit your job just to keep track of things. Okay. All right, we got a next question. Okay, I'm Marlon from uh, Northwestern Pennsylvania. He's got a whole he's got a whole list of questions. He's got notes. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, is it possible to take a property, especially a smaller one, and make it too busy? And what I mean by that is try to cram everything in that small piece of property. Let's say you have 20 acres or something. You want the food plot. You want a bunch of tree stands. You have your trailer cameras, different variety of, of clovers, soybeans, or whatever, different plots, and cram everything in one property. And maybe by doing that, you're going to push out the bigger, bigger bucks. And also kind of in that same category, there's probably a lot of listeners out here that would love to have a 200-acre farm or something but financially might not be equipped to it, might have access to 20 acres behind the house or something, what can they do without a huge amount of investment, maybe other than time, to try and keep a big buck on that property? It's a great question. Well, not only can you make a small property too busy, I've seen 200-acre properties that were too busy. Um, the The quickest way to ruin a good property is human intrusion and the smaller a property is the more important it is that freedom of human intrusion in fact i fully believe that the smaller the property is the less you need to be doing there the less you should be doing there it, it might be that you need to do absolutely nothing except stay out of it um, another big mistake i see you, you quite frequently you mentioned uh, you know having stands everywhere um, a property, is only, I don't care how big it is, it's only going to have so many good stand sites. And too often I, I, I visit a property and, and the client wants to have, I need at least three stand sites for every wind direction. Well, we can come up with that, but I, I'm a big fan of just taking what that property gives you. And if there's only one, I've got a lot of properties I hunt that's got one stand on the whole property. And when a big buck shows up there, I'm set. I, I, I can kill him from that stand. Um, when, when you start, uh, and I actually did a YouTube video about this, uh, when, when you go into your property and you got to have, you know, your water hole and you got to, um, you got to have a horizontal rub and you got to have, you know, rope scrapes and, and, and anything has its, everything has its place, but when you got to have it all, especially on a small property, you've just ruined it because that, that big buck is not going to tolerate it. I, I know all kinds of big deer that have lived their lives in very small patches. and But the thing about those patches they lived in, there was zero human intrusion, zero. It was a lot of them. The farther off the road they are, usually the better. If you've just got, you know, a, an acre or two of trees in the middle of a section that's nothing but corn and bean fields, well, crap, a buck can go out there in bed every day and nobody's ever going to bump him. When the sun goes down and it gets dark, boom, he stands up and he walks a mile and he's chasing does, making scrapes and rubs, leaving trail camera pictures, getting everybody excited. But when the sun comes back up, guess what? He's, he's back in that little patch. So um, I, I think most people probably uh, ruin their small patches by doing too much. So, so that's definitely a possibility. Great question. All right, got another one. I'm Ivan. I'm from Ohio. My question is regarding water holes. How important is it to have water and where at and how much should you have per 100 acres? 
Great question, because I get this all the time, especially when I go to visit a property, you know. I think water is the most overrated thing for, for whitetail in the Midwest. There, there's, I mean, if you was in the arid southwest, for example, it might be a different story. But here in the Midwest, for the most part, I think it's uh, the deer are fine without us putting man-made water holes out there. I'm not saying that deer won't use them if you do. But um, I, I, they're going to find some place to drink. And the reason that I, I, I tend to think this way is I know a situation – where every summer there's a bachelor group that stays in this section of, of ground. There, there's, it's mainly corn and soybean fields and uh, a couple hedgerows. Every year, every summer, I can put a camera out there and day after day after day get pictures of these bucks in this bachelor group. And this section is a mile across, a mile and a half long, and I have no idea where those deer drink. I cannot find a mud puddle on that entire section. All the fields have field tile with the with the stand pipes that drains every, all the standing water. I have no idea where these deer are drinking, but yet they're out there in the middle of this section every day in front of my camera. And that just and I don't know if they're getting the moisture they need from the crops or, or you know what they're eating or what. Maybe they found some place that I can't find. But uh, you know I think the idea of creating you know artificial water sources. Probably has its place, and deer will use them to some degree. But in, in most of the Midwest, I think it's way overrated as far as its importance on a property. If you had to choose between investing in bedding, food plot, or water hole, would it be number three of those Water choices? hole would be at the bottom of the list every time. Yep. Okay. Next. Hi guys, uh, my name's Sean. I'm the guy from New Hampshire. Um, question is, we talked about, or you talked about hunting the wind as essentially the most important thing. Talked about the blind. Uh, where I live, it's almost a complete opposite of here. Lots and lots of timber, no ag at all. Uh, last year, I decided to try some real world soybeans. There's not a soybean within 200 miles of where I live, and the deer hammered them, <laughs> devastated. Um, I had them fenced all summer, took the fence down three weeks before season, and it took them 10 days to wipe out almost an acre. Um, I want to I redo it a little smarter this year. My question is, um, that field is kind of in the bottom. We have to use openings where they are, where I live. Will the blind help hunting in those bottoms? I have a lot of issues with swirling winds. Uh, even when the winds are good, the thermals contradict in the evenings, so... Wondering if that blind helps out with the wind at all. A blind absolutely will help. Um, I, it's not 100% foolproof, but it'll definitely cut down on, on you know the scent that's being released. So, um, yeah, for sure. Uh-oh. Got to get her down. Uh-oh. I got I to think of a question before you leave the microphone. My name's Joe Johnson. Live here local. Uh, Don and myself have been good friends for lots of years. But, Don, my question would be kind of aspect of the shed hunting. But uh, you've wrote the articles about the same time, same place years ago. And we uh, took some pictures years ago about a buck that I'd found five years in a row. And then I was just thinking back about the Joey buck. And uh, 
I didn't even realize it when I found his third year of shed and I brought it over to Don and he, he told me that it was this Joey buck. I hadn't even realized that. But Don realized that by using his trail cameras. I don't run a lot of trail cameras, but just in the aspect of, and my, my theory is, with that article you wrote about that, was that I love to go back, especially after a buck gets three years old and he's still surviving, to go back into the same areas because I have had real good luck. This Joey buck where I found the very first shed and his third year of a shed was probably 20 yards apart. And I could throw rocks in the whole distance that I ever found them sheds. But just to relate on some of that, I, you know, your article with same time, same place really hits home. Yeah, I mean, a, a buck's going to live his entire life, you know, following pretty much the same pattern, um, annual pattern. So, you know, where he's at when it's shed antlers uh, or time for him to shed antlers, as long as there's not, uh, you know, real terrible weather and limited food sources, he's not. He's going to be in the same spot. The only thing that's going to change, you know, is if food becomes real limited, weather becomes real bad, and, and they get on those – those food sources that are maybe a mile away. But, uh, you know, typically that same time, same place um, pattern follows throughout the entire year. Okay. Yeah, put that up Jason there. from Indiana. So, Don, I, I read your book. Oh, gosh, it's been over a decade now, Hunting Whitetails in the Real, real World, oh, 10 years ago. You convinced me then to stop hunting October mornings. And so, <clears throat> I guess I'll read my question here. But, you know, I've been running cameras pretty consistently for the last 10 years. Seems like every year I buy five more. So, I don't know. I, I don't can relate to that. <laughs> so, my question is, uh, I'm, I've almost convinced myself now that maybe even hunting November mornings isn't such a good idea. So, now, this may be specific to my geographical area, but my question is, how is hunting November mornings different than October mornings if mature bucks are still jay-hooking their way into the bedding area? I believe the mature bucks in my area are on their bellies when the sun, sun comes up in November, if, with the caveat, if assuming they're not tending a doe, just as in October due to the, hunting he uh, the heavy hunting pressure. Uh, I guess the difference between October and November is that, at least in my area that I've noticed for running cameras, is that they may get up a couple hours after sunrise and scent check the downwind side of the bedding areas. Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, the difference for sure is that during October, um, a lot of those bucks are just, I mean, to, to catch a buck on his feet before the sun comes up, a mature buck, is just extremely rare. Um, and when he's doing that scent checking downwind of his bedding area and then jay hooking back in, most of the time he's doing that in the dark before the sun ever comes up and he's in that bedding area. And, and it doesn't matter if you get in there at 3 in the morning. If When he runs that downwind edge in the dark, if he smells you, he's not coming in there. Um, in, in November, I think what changes – uh, you're right, I, I believe, that a lot of times, a lot of mornings, those bucks are in their beds before the sun comes up. 
but I think there's more mornings in November, especially if you get those cold, frosty mornings. A, a lot of times that they're later coming back into their bed. Now that doesn't mean you know, and there's what thirty-one days in November. Um, where is it thirty? I guess it really doesn't matter. But of those 30, 31 days, um, you know, how many of those mornings is a mature buck going to be on his feet? Very few. But but there are going to be a few. Where in, in October, there's probably not going to be any. So I, I believe most of the time in November, yeah, before the sun comes up, he's bedded. But there's going to be a few that I don't think he is. Next. How many well, days is in November, anyway? 30. Well, while we're waiting for somebody, we got somebody coming up to the mic. I got a question. If it's about love swings, save it. It is about it, because I'm sitting over here looking at Wes Delks. Wes Delks is here tonight. <laughs> and the whole love swing started with us picking on Wes. And now all of a sudden, this thing has shifted to me, and I've never been in one. So I, I want to know why all this something. We're not picking on Wes sitting here. Because he's a he's an expert in the field of tree saddles, and for those of you who don't know, um, you know Wes Wes bought in and is partial owner of Real World, but a lot of people recognize him. He's actually on a billboard on I seventy between Paris and Terre Haute, Indiana. So if you're driving by, he had a he had a short stint as a model modeling career before he came to Real World. So uh, if he looks familiar, that's the reason why. We have a question coming up here. <laughs> the the quarter million people that listen to the podcast didn't hear what you just said so only 30 will know the truth <laughs> all right we got another real question here dean from winterville missouri i got this is for both you and terry, uh, terry and don um e-bikes or electric bikes have become more popular obviously in the hunting industry and obviously quiet cat 20 sponsors and i just personally bought one just recently, and I hadn't been on a bike, and I couldn't tell you how many long, how long. Just riding around the house, and I took it to the farm a couple of times. I'm gonna tell you what, it can get away from you. So, and I listen to all your podcasts, so and I've never really ha- heard anybody or you guys expand more on how you guys utilize that as a tool. So, if you could, maybe you can talk about how. You, obviously, it's transportation to and from, but I can see a fallen limb coming down. You coming out of the woods at dark and hit the limb, and you follow with, with your your bow and your backpack and your lone wolf tree stand and. Wait, on the lighter side, can you guys expand, expand on that if you guys have ever taken a, sp- a fall? Um, you want to answer that first? You want me to do? Um, I've never taken a fall. Uh, this last year was my first season using one. I've, I've borrowed Don's, but I had my own for this season. And quite honestly, it was um, it enabled me to hunt this year. If you remember, I had knee reconstruction, and I was in a brace from my ankle to my hip. Uh, most of the deer season this year so um, I would get on it and I when you say low gear and putt because my <laughs> my knee was still in a brace I've ne- I didn't get it fast enough to to take a fall um, the way I utilize it is and you'll see I, I, I guess it'll make a little bit more sense when you see a little bit more walking around looking at stand sites we don't really drive them into the woods per se. We're driving them and leaving them. I mean, you can drive these things to the base of your tree stand and lay them in weeds and then go up. Um, um, you, you can talk to our buddy, Mr. Wetzel back there. He, he's, he's got proof of that for a hunting story this year, but um, these things will run like 
30 plus mile an hour depending on the model you have you get on loose gravel come off of a turn or something that you'll wipe out real quick but um i just like it especially this year because quietly i could cover ground and get to the area and then lay it down and then slip in but i don't have any experience of say driving it back in the woods but most of my property up here that i'm hunting i have to cross a big ag field you know where um you know, zipping across the middle of that thing, no noise with with uh, no scent on the ground. It was it was a lifesaver for me when I was in a knee brace the way I was this year. I, when I got mine, I'll tell you, I was uh, I found out real quick that that thing went faster than this old guy wants to go. <laughs> um, the last thing I wanted to do is break my neck on an electric bike <laughs> or set out a season because I broke my leg. Um, I, I, I don't ever take mine. It's got eight gears. I've never taken it out of third because in third gear, it'll go faster than I want to fall. Um, I've never wiped out on it. So I don't even know how fast mine goes. I have a, I have a single speed. <laughs> I got a little bit different model, um, and uh, I can tell you how slow it goes. I can keep it upright at about two miles an hour. That's that's all I'm all I'm interested in doing. Do y'all, do, do y'all take them to the base of the tree or the base of the – the blind and just lay it down there or do you kind of park it i leave it out of way with my situation but i mean if for the right situation if if i could drive up to the back of a stand and it had brush i wouldn't think twice about it yeah i've done both yep you'll like it it's 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 a game changer but at the same time we're not we're not really uh running gun or uh you know hang and sit type of guys where we got just a ton of equipment we go in with a backpack and our our bow and that's about it all of our stuff you'll see tomorrow all of our stuff up is set up from february the year the year before for where we're going to hunt all right any more questions no more brain busters somebody's got to have one more we got time for one more west delks is sitting back there he he can't hardly stand it he's got a question just maybe he wants to talk about his former modeling career I'm Matt. I'm from uh, Northern Illinois. Uh, my question is, we had not talked about killing does at all. Do you guys have a doe management plan? Do you care about does? Do you have to shoot a lot of does around here to get big bucks? Is that important, or you just kind of ignore it? Um, we don't shoot a lot of does around here. Our, our deer herd is uh, is not to that point where we need to. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about doe management tomorrow, um, specifically uh, which does to shoot. And I recognize that this area is probably different than where most of you guys come from. Most of you probably do need to shoot some does. I just don't around here. Um, in 2011 and before, I was trying to shoot two does for every buck that I shot on this place or those hunting with me. I tried to keep it, you know, two does for every buck. And then in 2012, EHD came through and, and wiped out our herd. It was probably about 25% of what it had been the year before. And I, I shut off the doe harvest. And for from 2012 to 2020, I did not – well, last year was 2020. was the first year that I shot any does since 2011. And we shot two last year. So uh, the herd's coming back. I mean, it's taken it several years. But, uh, you know, my, we're going to really get into that doe management tomorrow. And 
I, I don't know if it was smart for me to call this guy out, but Wes Delks is stepping up to the I got mic. My, I got my finger on the red button in case this yeah, starts hit, with Terry. Hit the kill switch if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, If you dish it out, you got to take it, right? I've got a face for radio, so I figure I better set the record straight. I-70 on the right side between Brazil, nope. Indiana, and Terre Haute. Never been a model and never will be. So. On the billboard, on the right, yellow background, can't miss it. My question's for Terry. Terry, <laughs> this, this is a straight straight question. Uh, oh, how has your deer hunting changed since you've met Don? How, wow. Have, have you changed your strategies? Or? We got that in an email this week, and you Did forwarded we? it to me. Somebody didn't have my email address, oh, and yeah. you forwarded it to yeah. me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, this is easy to answer because I've already answered it once this week. Um hunt less and hunt the right conditions and be more successful. Um I guess, you know, I'm not I'm not knocking Don, but you have you have the privilege with how you've sacrificed over the years and you can hunt every day of deer season. I I have limited vacation time. You know, today was a vacation day for me at work. Today is a day that I give up to come and do this that I could be hunting in October or November. So I have very limited days. I have kids at home. Um, I used to think that I had to be in the woods if I wasn't with my family or my kids or whatever the responsibilities were. And um, I guess, you know, you you all are going to walk around this farm tomorrow and you're going to look at different things and say, I can never do this to my property. And, and in some cases that's true, but there's something even every, I know this farm probably better than most people outside of Dawn. Um, there's every time I come here, it still triggers something that I can do different on my property. And I think that's what you'll appreciate about it tomorrow when you walk around and see these stands. So there's going to be little tips and tricks. I think everybody will take away, but the one thing that he's always talked about with me is hunt when the conditions are right and don't go in when they're wrong. And since I started doing that, I've been lucky, fortunate enough to kill some, a lot of deer, but when I consistently started killing deer five years or older, um, was when I changed to that. I think, I think anybody in a good genetic area can walk out and hunt the wrong wind and kill 125 to 135 inch three year olds and two year olds. I think those deer exist in a lot of part of the country, especially the Midwest. But if you want to kill a five year old, you, you can't do that. So I think I think my success has been a whole lot better since I started hunting less, and only in the right conditions. So I spend. I guess I spend more time prep work in the off season now, less time hunting, and I have been more successful. So I've never seen another person, and and this goes for the guys that I work with that play a lot of golf or the guys that fish, whatever your hobby is, I've never seen anybody put the amount of time that Don puts in year-round every single day for six sets a year. Besides, besides the year you shot Trump, where you set ten sh- sets, think about how many deer, <laughs> big bucks you've killed that you've only hunted for him like twice or three times. I mean, it's it's crazy the amount of work that he goes into for how little he hunts, but how successful he is. So I think there's something to that. Well, thank you. No more love swing comments for this episode. Save it for next week, huh? Yeah. It's supposed to be Wes. I've never even been in one. He has. <laughs> So, I won't lie, Wes. I actually one time did call the number where it says advertise here, 
on one of those billboards to see how much it would even cost to get like a mock-up of what it would look like because I wanted to at least see how much it was <laughs> and get a proof. It might have even been worth it, but that picture of you without your shirt on with the pulse all that you te- made the mistake of texting me that one time, that would have been perfect. <laughs> all right with that um, we're gonna have a good time tomorrow good weather and uh thanks for everybody with their questions um i really appreciate you guys being here tonight and absolutely uh, uh, with that don can sign us out and take us out with our sponsors all right we want to thank our sponsors buyafarm.com 360 hunting blinds victory chevrolet lone wolf tree stands vengeance camo quiet cat real-world wildlife products, Vortex Optics, and Matthews Archery. See you next week, everyone.